Welcome, you guys. I love the fact that you're here. Happy New Year again. Um, I just want to let you know, uh, for those of you who could not make it, we had an amazing Christmas season at Mariner's Mission Life. This was our first ever Christmas as a new church, and we decided to go crazy and throw three Christmas Eve services. Are we nuts? Yeah, we're nuts. But we got to learn a bunch of fun stuff uh, about that. We even had some staff from Chick-fil-A show up to the 11 p.m. service, which actually doubled our attendance. It was pretty awesome. But, uh, but it was so great. God was honored. We celebrated Jesus as a church. And, uh, and then we invited people. Many of you took church in a box with you home because we wanted to have a volunteer appreciation weekend for so many of you guys who serve so faithfully. And so, so many of you took that church in a box home and and had a time of worship and celebration at home and I'm sure it went very smoothly with your families I'm sure it went absolutely without a hitch I know in my family it went perfectly it was a nightmare but it was great so we're five days into the new year uh, and I don't know about you guys but I love fresh Starts, And I feel like the new year just provides this opportunity for us to look at the year in a new and fresh way. And I, I don't know about you, I look back at 2019 and, and there were so many great things that happened in 2019. I mean, this church started, you know, our family had great memories and vacations that we had together. But I also know that for, for many of us, it wasn't a great year. And I look back at my, the last couple years and there's other years that I would say, okay, I could take a do-over on that particular year. And so wherever you're at in that whole kind of perspective about New Year's and looking ahead and looking back, I totally get it. So whether this past year was good for you, bad, or just kind of more of the same, no matter what, this time seems to be the time where people are asking themselves whether they say it or not, how should I approach 2020? How should I approach this next year. What am I going to be doing different? What am I going to stop doing? And and what am I going to start doing? How am I going to maybe limit my mistakes and, and maximize my potential? Whether we say that out loud or not, I think for many people, we're thinking like that. And, and underlying the motivation behind all of that is this. We want to enjoy the best life possible. We want to go ahead and, and do the things that we need to do to best give us the, the opportunity for happiness. And we've talked about this over the last several weeks in some ways or another. But part of the challenge is, do we really know what to do to get us to where we want to go? Do we really have the resources available to us to become the kind of people that we want to become? And part of the challenge is, is that we often know what the right thing to do actually is, but we choose for whatever reason not to do it. So we, we go about this year and we think, okay, I just got to get this new planner or I've got to get this journal thing or I'm going to su- subscribe to these podcasts or I'm going to hire a coach or a trainer. I- I'm going to do all of these things to kind of get me where I want to go. And yet, even with all of that information, it doesn't always lead to transformation. Or maybe for some of us, we, we look at 2020 and we look at the new year and we're like, I reject all of it. I, 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 I'm, I'm good. I don't need to change it all. I'm happy with where I'm at. I'm, I like the, my, the way my life is going right now. I'm good. I don't need to make any changes. I don't buy into this whole thing. In fact, you know what? The research shows that this, if you're like most people, believe that you're way above average at almost everything. 
This is actually what the research actually shows. For instance, research studies have asked, they did a survey literally of a million high school students. I, I don't know how they did it, but they got a million high school students. They asked the question, how well they got along with their peers. None out of the one million surveyed said that they had a below average relationship with their peers. None. In fact, 60% believed they were in the top 10% of how well they got along with their peers. 60% of them. In fact, 25% rated themselves in the top 1%. All right? Now, what's interesting is that you'd think, okay, college professors, how, how would they rate themselves? Um, and specifically, the survey asked, how would you rate your ability compared to your colleagues? And so they asked that question. 2%, only 2% of them rated themselves below average. Eh, I'm a little bit below average. I'm kind of, you know. And then 10% said, no, I'm pretty average. I'm pretty average among like my, my peers. 63% said they were above average compared to their colleagues. In fact, 25% rated themselves as truly exceptional. All right? So what does this mean? This means that the average person believes he or she is a better person than the average person. That's what most people think about. So just to be clear, this has not Mission life. I mean, mission life. No, no, no. We are very humble and we are very, this is other people, right? But, but this is something that's a part of the way we think about. What do we learn? We tend to overestimate ourselves. We see our own faults in faint black and white rather than 4K color. You know, we tend to assume the worst in others while assuming the best about ourselves. In other words, what often limits our ability to make the changes we need to make is our own pride. So how confident are we as we move into 2020 to go after the kind of life that we design, desire to have, to kind of have the transformation that we might want to have? How confident are we? And as exciting as a new year can be, or Maybe for some of us, it's filled with uncertainty or fear of the future. No matter if we love creating lists and goals and all that stuff, they're not necessarily bad things. We all have our approaches to 2020 that we think will serve us best. But what if we took a moment and considered how God might want us to approach 2020? What if God had some wisdom he would want to give us to do things a little bit differently in light of our own limitations and to access his limitless resources? See, whether you're new here to Mission Life or you've been checking Jesus out or maybe you've been coming for quite some time, whether we believe in God or not, the Bible talks about a relationship with God who desires far more for us because he loves us. And the things that limit us the most, fear, uncertainty, pride, maybe he has exactly what we need to approach 2020 beyond what we could possibly do on our own. So today what we're doing, we're kicking off our new year series called Limitless, discovering the limitless resources God has for your best life. And so let me pray for us as we dive into this. God, I pray in the name and power of Jesus that you would open up our minds and hearts to hear what you want to say to us. God, would you meet us exactly where we're at, no matter what we're going through, 
Whether we're afraid, whether we're discouraged, whether we're excited, would you speak to us right now? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I think a theme verse for this particular series, it's right there in your bulletin. It'll be on the screen. It's Ephesians 3.20. The Apostle Paul, he is praying for a community of believers to look at this limitless God and to take advantage of this limitless God and to live in light of this limitless God. Notice what he says. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. In other words, we need to look to this God who wants to do above and beyond what we can even imagine. Why? Because he loves us so much. So the question is, how can we access that? How might God want us to approach 2020 to the, have the life that he has for us that we can't achieve on our own, no matter what might be limiting us right now? So Jesus, of course, offers us some insight because what did he do? Well, he came to bring us a new kind of life, unavailable by human effort, in what he called the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And he said this in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, who's Jesus speaking to? Jesus was speaking to a bunch of peasants, a bunch of farmers, a, a bunch of uh, families, and they were poor. They didn't have wealth. They didn't have status. They didn't have access like the aristocrats of their day. And what's surprising about Jesus and what he's saying here, and without going too deep into the theology behind this, is he was saying basically that the, the kingdom of God in Jewish theology was supposed to be where all things would become, made, would become right in the world. That the arrival of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God would signal that things are going to change. That this God has finally returned to go ahead and make things new. The great reversal of the brokenness and the failure of the world, God is coming back and he's starting to do it through the ministry and the life of this Jesus. This new age that they've been anticipating had actually begun the moment Jesus arrives on the scene 2,000 years ago. And so this meant that God's gracious activity was finally bursting into the human world to bring justice and mercy and forgiveness. And the word blessed there, we, we hear that word a lot. We talked about it over the last couple of weeks as well. It means happy, and it means really in connection with a relationship with God. But in fact, it also kind of implies congratulations. So you could really read this as congratulations to those who are poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. In other words, you're in an enviable position. You, you actually have God's favor. You, you actually have him on your side. And he's actually going to work on your behalf. Oh, congratulations. The kingdom of heaven is yours. But how can we access this? The poor in spirit. The more one is aware of their need for God, the more one is going to be receptive to the work of God that is dawning through those who are attached to Jesus. So if we want to step into 2020 with God's gracious activity at work in our life, we have to realize what it means to be poor 
in spirit? Are we poor in spirit? How do we know? What does this look like? What does this mean? Well, we're going to look at an example of someone who was poor in spirit. They saw how they needed God because they had an epic fail in their life. Turn to Psalm chapter 51 if you have a Bible, or you could follow along in your bulletin. Psalm 51. We're looking at a very famous psalm attributed to King David. And we're not going to read all of it, but this is a bold prayer. This is by a man who had made some colossal mistakes and really exemplifies what it means to be poor in spirit. But here's the beautiful thing. We don't want to wait to come to the place where he came to be poor in spirit. We want to learn from his mistake and his modeling so we could benefit from being poor in spirit today. So notice what he says in Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, God. According to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. That word abundant means great, overflowing, overwhelming. He's looking to the God who can go above and beyond. And what does he say? Blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin, for I'm I'm conscious of my rebellion. My sin is always before me. So, Why is David praying this prayer? Well, for those of you who aren't familiar with his story, he's totally blown it. He is literally at the peak of the chain. He is the king of Israel. He has everything available to him. And at this moment, he's living and responding in wake to his grievous sin of adultery to Bathsheba. He's murdered Bathsheba's husband. And he has taken her as his own wife. And God sees all of this devastation and is displeased and uses a a prophet named Nathan to expose what he was trying to cover up. God saw all of it. And so in the midst of this, I'm not saying, hey, let's go out and blow it big so we can get to this place where we're open to pray like this. I'm not saying that. But let's learn from his posture to what, to what does it look like to be poor in spirit. So what can we learn right now? Here's the first thing. If David were to talk to us right now, he would say, first of all, when you come before God like this to be poor in spirit, we don't blame. We don't blame. Verse 4, against you, you alone, I have sinned and done evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You're blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Now, for some of us, we're not familiar with the term sin. Sin means missing the mark. It means we're not living in light of God's intended design and purpose. We're not flourishing and thriving as the human beings that God designed us to be. And and David recognizes in this moment His spirit has been just absolutely impoverished as he recognizes, I can't make any excuses for myself. I'm not going to blame somebody else. I'm not going to blame others. I am living in light of the decisions, the choices, the desires, the appetites that I have. I'm in this place that I am because of me. And so to be poor in spirit really means I don't have it all together. And it's my fault. And notice what David doesn't say. Notice what David doesn't say about this incident. You know, my men, you know, they should have stopped me. 
You know, when I was going out to go ahead and, 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 and get Bathsheba, I should have had these guys stop me. Or, or, hey, she was bathing on the roof nearby. I mean, who does that? I mean, I was just going up there to relax, and she was in my way, my view. And so he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, my wife, McCall, oh, she hasn't been there for me. And so she drove me away. He doesn't provide any of those kind of excuses. And notice in verse 5, he admits his need for forgiveness isn't just a one-time thing. He he recognizes that he is bent towards himself. You know, if someone were to ask you, hey, what's the difference between an apology and a confession? Would you know the difference? In the wake of numerous public confessions by by fallen politicians or business executives or sports figures, there is a book written called The Art of Public Grovel by Susan Weisbauer, and she offers a helpful distinction. She said this, an apology is an expression of regret. I'm sorry. A confession is an admission of fault. I'm sorry because I did wrong. I sinned. Do you see the difference? Can you tell the difference when you see people who are truly contrite, truly regretful of the decisions that they've made and they own it, they take full responsibility of it? Now, let me tell you something that is so shocking. I mean, this is worth you being here this morning, right here. None of us like confession. Thank you. See, aren't you glad you came? None of us like confession. We do not like to do this. When when we have messed up or we've made mistakes, our first response is not confession. It is deflection, right? It's covering up. That's what we do. It's defensiveness. You did this. You did this. You caused this. And we see it from the very beginning of the biblical narrative. God already knows. And so when we ignore it, for hurting others, ourselves, and we don't accept that full responsibility, what are we doing? We're missing out on being poor in spirit. And when we don't blame, when we confess like David here, we discover something about God's limitless resources. When we don't blame, we confess like David here, we discover something about God's limitless resources that actually can make us more open to admitting our fault. So notice what David teaches us next about being poor in spirit. The the next thing is he says, we don't bargain. We don't bargain with God. Verse 16, he says this in his prayer, you do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. In those days, they had a temple where God's glory would dwell among his people. And the way in which God could dwell in the midst of his beloved people who were unholy and impure and full of brokenness was to have some sort of a system to help provide sacrifices, to appe- not to appease God, but to say, You are a broken, fallen person, and I am a holy and perfect God. This is a visual reminder of the cost of your sin. And so David is saying, look, 
What I would like to do is I'd just like to kind of give you a bunch of more sacrifices to cover this thing up and fix this whole mess, and then we'd be good. That's what I want to do, but he knows better. That's not what God really wants. Sacrifices during this period were meant to teach God's people something. And to be ceremonially clean was really important in light of God's holiness. But what's interesting here is David knows God doesn't care about having more sacrifices if my heart hasn't changed. And and, and I think for many people, and even maybe in this room, we sometimes get confused. God is not interested in more holy rituals. He, he wants our hearts. He's not looking for us to bargain with him like, oh, okay, God, I, you know what? I know I meant, uh, let, me, let me go ahead and make sure I start showing up to Mission Life every single week and I can check that off the box and you'll be happy about that even though I'm not going to ignore the brokenness and the decisions over here in my life. For many of us, maybe if we haven't seen God at work lately because our hearts, we've been treating God like we need to appease him in some way, and it's ignoring the heart surgery that he wants to do. We're bargaining with God, and we miss out on being poor in spirit. Next, this also means that we don't believe in ourselves. We don't believe in ourselves. Now, let me be clear. Some of us were thinking, wait a minute, what? how? That sounds so counter to our culture. Check this out, verse 10. God, create a clean heart for me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. Sustain me by giving a willing spirit. In other words, what's he saying? I can't change my heart. I can't do it. I don't have the capacity to do it. I need your help. David chooses to believe he is not enough, which is actually the greatest place to be for those who want to be poor in spirit. The word create here, it's used all the time in the Old Testament, connected to God's divine action, which brings something new. A new order of things shaped by his divine and good will. God wants to reorder our hearts. Why? Because our hearts are naturally bent towards worshiping other things rather than God. And that puts our hearts out of order. And it leads us to decisions and desires that are devastating to his purpose and his life change that he wants to do in us. Charles Spurgeon, a very famous pastor, once said, none but God can create either a new heart or a new earth. See, a clean heart is a purified heart. What does that mean? It means that the other things that are vying for our affection are removed. And our heart is properly in order where God is number one. He made us. He created us. He loves us. He wants relationship for us. He wants the best for you and for me, but we don't necessarily trust him with that. And so what corrupts our heart is these other things that we think is gonna, are going to give us the kind of life that we want. And so here's what we do. And we miss this all the time. I know I do. Is when we realize we want to make a change in our life. Instead of coming to God 
in acknowledging we need his help. We just fill our schedules with activity, religious activity, religious practices. And how many people do we know, even that we've experienced in our own life, we think, this is what God wants from me. But this misses what really needs to be addressed, which is our heart. We need to be poor in spirit. And when we don't believe in ourselves, we're positioning our hearts in the right place to be open to God's holiness and how much we fall short and then his amazing grace towards us. See, if you're anything like me, so much of my life, I resist coming to God because I think I can do it on my own. I think I can fix my problems. I can get it done by myself. David knows he can't fix his heart problem. He needs God's divine intervention. And we too can fall into the cycle of of self-deception or pride or defeat. And so what happens? So what happens when we stop blaming or we stop bargaining with God or we stop believing in ourselves to change our own hearts? It positions us to respond with brokenness. We actually can respond with brokenness. And this is what David does right here in his psalm in verse 8. He goes, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. And get this, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. The thing that we just resist this so much. And yet God is saying, I want you to be broken. I'm not going to reject you in your brokenness. I'm inviting you to come closer. And your brokenness is what will bring you closer to allow me to heal and transform your heart. And what happens is, is joy starts to flood our hearts as a result. We're overwhelmed by God's grace and his compassion and his mercy. Our hearts start to change. Now, every couple weeks, unfortunately for you, I have to use an illustration from CrossFit, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> but I, 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 I try to go there pretty often, and one of the things that I hate is I hate admitting my limitations. And I show up there, and I'm reminded over and over and over again how I can do some things but at the prescribed weight or the skill or whatever they got for the workout of the day, I can't do. And I hate that feeling. And so what do I do in that moment? I can can either just ignore, you know, the coach or ignore the opportunities to progress and do the things I can do to get there. But what does that do? It keeps me limited. It prevents me from progressing and growing. And so... I want to grow, though. I I, I want to take my next step. Well, I've got to be open and admit where I'm at. I've got to admit, this is where I'm at. That's all I can say. God, would you help me in the midst of taking my next step? And David realizes what God wants most from him is not more religious activities. He wants him to sacrifice his pride. I, I want you to sacrifice your pride because that's where I can fill your heart 
with my limitless grace. The unmerited divine favor that brings the resources of the kingdom of God all over your life. That's what I want for you. That's why our church is committed to creating spaces like this, to come as you are. This is not the time to show up with, hey, everything's going great, we're all, oh yeah, yeah. No, no, we are a community of imperfect people. We, we're a community on a journey of restoration because of this Jesus. And so here's the big idea I want you to get before you leave here today, and it's this. God makes the best me out of a broken me by his limitless grace. God makes the best me out of a broken me by his limitless grace. I don't know about you, but this is really good news. <laughs> this is such good news. <laughs> I need this. I need this every day, every week, every month, every year. I need this. Because I have hopes, like you. I have aspirations, I have dreams, I have disappointments. And usually it comes back to me. What I can control, what I can't control. Am I enough? Am I not enough? Failures in how I treat my wife or my kids or other people. God doesn't want us to hate ourselves. He wants us to hate our sin. Because when we hate our sin, we're open enough to see God's amazing love and his goodness and his grace. And without that, I'm tempted to rely on my own abilities. I'm tempted to try to keep up appearances with other people that make you think I'm better than I really am. It's exhausting. So how can we stay broken before God? What can we do? What's our next step? How can we move forward? Here's a couple ideas. When we turn our lives over to Jesus, and for some of us, we might not have done that yet. And this is your day. You can do that. You can simply invite Jesus. Jesus, forgive me. Purify my life. Purify my heart. I want a relationship with you. I want to follow you. I don't have it all figured out. Take that first step. Pray. Ask Jesus. Come into my life and let us know. But when we turn our lives over to Jesus, he gives us his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit reminds us on a regular basis to go back to God, to turn back to him. He nudges us, he guides us to keep longing for God and his goodness and his love, but he won't do it for us. And so here are some ideas to keep this in front of us, to live with this sense of brokenness before us. A great way to avoid being poor in spirit is to ignore the Bible, okay? If you want to make sure that you're not poor in spirit, don't read the Bible. Do not do that. Okay? One-year Bible reading plan, ignore that. Just don't even do it if you don't want to be poor in spirit. But if you want to be poor in spirit, you've got to read God's Word. If you've never done it, I get it. Join the journey with us wherever you're at. The Christian life is not acquiring more Bible knowledge and quoting scriptures at people. That just puffs people up and makes them arrogant and self-righteous. That is not who we are. But the Bible reminds us of our brokenness as we look at human condition. We look at the stories and go, that's me, that's me, that's me. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. But in the midst of it, you see God's grace. You see him at work. 
And he's saying, come, trust me. I've got promises for you. Trust me. Look at what I've done for you. Get into God's word if you want to cultivate a life that is broken before God. A second way is getting around other people on the journey of faith. When we get into groups like FPU or the connect groups that we offer for men and women, etc., that's a great way for us to get real and honest and transparent. The groups are designed for us to get into God's word and to discuss God's word and to process it through our own lives. Not to show off our knowledge, It's to admit our brokenness before Jesus and start to go, I need to trust him. Will you pray for me? Will you pray for me to obey him so that it can change the way I treat my wife or my kids or my coworkers? Get into community and on the journey of faith with others. Another way is through prayer. Maybe you've never prayed before. Maybe prayer is an intimidating thing for you. We want to encourage you to start to pray. Prayer will open up your heart to what God wants to show you and keep you in this humble We do this thing called Rooted. It's a 10-week spiritual growth experience. It's launching in April. And one of the weeks talks all about this. If you don't know how to pray, you could talk to our prayer team afterwards. You can sign up for Rooted in a couple months. But we want to start that journey of prayer. There are all kinds of other ways. Those are just some ideas. But here's why this matters so much in our approach to God. Think of our relationship with Jesus like a balloon. There are two ways to keep a balloon afloat. If you blow up the balloon with your own air, you're like, (laughs) that balloon needs you to smack it around a little bit to keep it up, right? You got to keep kind of doing this. Keep going up like this, right? Some of us view our relationship with God like this. I've got to show up on a Sunday, have Kirsch smack me around a little bit. Boop, 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 boop. Do this. Sign up for this. And you're like, I don't really like that. And then I don't see it for six months. I understand the why, all right? Because we think this is what the Christian life is like, smacking me around a little bit. I need to get smacked around. It's been a while. I should go get smacked around a little bit. No. This is not, this is not what God wants for you. It's not what God wants for me. There's another way to blow up a balloon, and it's helium. You don't need to smack it around. It floats. When we are poor in spirit and we see the good news of Jesus for us, we see the holiness of God, the justice of God come upon and punishing the perfect and sinless Son of God, Jesus, on our behalf because of God's grace that we don't deserve, that is helium. But I won't live like that unless I'm confronted with that truth on a regular basis. And so for maybe for some of us, this is the year to be broken. This is the year that we're going to stop playing church. This is the year we're going to stop keeping up with appearances. This is the year we're going to stop ignoring those things that are holding us back from trusting in the overwhelming, limitless grace of God. This is the year. Aren't you done? Let's stop playing a religious game. Jesus has so much more for you. He loves you so much. And so what does this look like? Well, if we live in light of this brokenness, what happens? Matthew 3, 8. Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying that if you walk in this broken, contrite-heartedness, 
because of the gospel, because of what I've done on your behalf, you are actually going to obey. You're going to actually rewrite your schedule. You're going to take a look at the way you do life and things are going to show up in your life different. You're going to become more patient and kind and loving and joy-filled. You're going to be less legalistic as a result. You're going to be quicker to run towards God in the moments where you realize, ah, I blew it. It'll show up in your life. See, repentance isn't a religious word. It just means heading in the wrong direction, being aware of it, and then heading in the right direction. Our whole life is a series of repentance. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Don't be afraid of that. Lean into that. Imagine what God can do to make the best you out of a broken you this year. Imagine what God can do. You don't even know. The Apostle Paul reminds us that our constant source of life is what Jesus has done for us. That Jesus came to literally be broken on our behalf so we wouldn't be broken by our sin. He says in Romans 8.31, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but give him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. How does God want you to respond? Let me ask you this. Will you allow yourself to live more broken before this Jesus so that he can fill you with his limitless grace? Will you commit to take your next step this year, one step after another, to be broken, to be poor in spirit, and to allow God to work in your life and do things that are above and beyond what you can possibly imagine in your marriage, in your habits, in your workplace, with your kids, with your parents, with your fellow students. Imagine what God can do with you being broken and open to God's limitless grace. I can't think of a better way to respond right now than to give you space to talk to God. And one of the ways in which we respond back to God is through communion. Communion is a way we remember what Jesus has done. And you're going to have an opportunity to do that. And so I'm going to pray for you. And then here at Mariner's Mission Life, we do communion like this. After uh, Jesus met with the disciples before he was betrayed, he basically sat before them and he took a cup and he said, this is the cup of my new covenant. It's in my blood. Take this in remembrance of me. And then he took some bread and he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, take this bread and remember my body given for you. And so when we partake of the cup and take of the bread, we remember what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so at Mariner's Mission Life, what we do is you're going to have a moment to pray and do business with God. Invite him to speak into whatever area of your life he wants to speak into 
And then when you're ready, confess that before him, receive his forgiveness and his love, and then stand up and then head over to one of our communion stations. You'll take a little piece of bread, you'll dip it in the cup, and you'll partake. And that's how we do communion here. So let's respond in communion. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you. Thank you that you are the God of limitless grace, that you do truly make the best me out of a broken me. Would you help us, God, to be poor in spirit before you even now, to allow our pride to to step aside, to not blame, to not bargain, but to admit our need for you. God, would you fill us with your amazing grace and would you fill us with a sense of joy as a result? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take communion.